If you'd like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash The Flight Diary for more details. This episode is brought to you by Delwood Disc Golf. Delwood is more than just a full-service pro shop. It's a shop dedicated to elevating Chicagoland disc golf to places it's never been before. Delwood is directly located on the canyons at Delwood Park, currently the number eight course in the world on U-Disc, and home of the Disc Golf Pro Tour Silver Series event, Clash at the Canyons. It's a passionate community. It's a place to grow. It's an experience. Go check out Delwood. You will not regret it. Find them on Instagram at Delwood underscore disc underscore golf or shop online at DelwoodDG.com. You're listening to The Flight Diary, an intimate collection of stories, theories, and thoughts from the world of professional disc golf. I'm your host, Brian Earhart. Joining me today on the show is none other than Nate Sexton. Nate has created an incredible career path in the world of disc golf for himself as a competitor, a commentator, and a teacher of the game. He sat down with me to talk about the early days of his life and how he seemingly fell into this role as a leader in the community just by following his passion for the game. Enjoy. good student I was I've, I've always been you know I've I feel like I have smart parents that you know did a good job kind of set me on the right path so I was kind of like a know-it-all kid I would say a little bit like in my early years before there was like homework that annoyed me so mm-hmm. like when I was young I felt like I was kind of just ace and stuff and like mm-hmm. in all the like you know extracurricular like I was going to science camps in the summer <laughs> and, you know like just hitting it pretty hard and and having fun with it and I definitely you know got my share of science fair trophies and, you know, had a good time with that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, absolutely. I think I really enjoyed school, especially as a young kid, I think. And then I think as I got a little bit older, you know, I started to kind of get a little more apathetic. I was always smart and like doing pretty well on tests, but you know, follow through on homework was not as good. So I wasn't some, I wasn't some 4.0 student. Like by the time I was older, I was more like a 2.9, 3.1 type of guy. So I was kind of like, I was smart, but I wasn't like, I was definitely having late assignments, you know, and if I could <laughs> yeah. do it all again, you know, I hope that I would do it a little differently, but that's certainly how I, I was handling those years. So you're a pretty a responsible kid. Yeah, I think so. You know, I don't know. I'm never, I've never been drawn to like alcohol or drugs. So mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't any kind of like party animal yeah. as a kid. I was generally, you know, not, not getting in a bunch of trouble, you know, mm-hmm. just hanging out with buddies and, you know, playing sports, whatever, you know, kid yeah. stuff. So then what, what were your aspirations as a kid? Like, did you have pa- like a passion as a kid? Do you remember something that like you, you latched onto? Was it sports? Was it art? Was it music? What exactly was that life for you back home? You know, I, I did band through middle school and stuff, played the alto saxophone. Oh, baby. Yeah. And that was fun, but I didn't take it into high school. Uh, I played soccer. I played ultimate frisbee. Uh, in high school? Yep. You guys had a, had a high school program? Yeah, I started it actually. Uh, like me and some guys from the surrounding schools and then there were some coaches and we like started the Oregon High School League and we hosted really? the, we hosted the first couple state championships at my school. For real? Yep. And I was like team captain of all that and and doing the the ultimate thing. So I was I was definitely pretty into that. And uh, yeah, and science as well, like life sciences. I was pretty passionate about like my ecology classes and like going out and doing like field studies and getting in the stream and sampling for insects and, you know, doing that kind of thing. So that was kind of the the path I saw myself going down. My degree is in environmental science. So I went to Oregon State University and did that. My parents both work in like forest science. So I just kind of like was following along like, yeah, that's what they do. And it's interesting. And but I didn't I wouldn't say I had like a. I just know this is what I'm going to be. It was more like I'm yeah. in college now. I don't really know what to major in, but I think biology's fun. So yeah. I'm just going to like kind of keep sort of floating along in that direction, yeah. but without like a real like when I finish this, yeah. I'm going to. You, you never know. had the linear life path. Not really. Most no. people don't though. Yeah. I only have about one or two friends that knew what they were going to do when they grew up and actually stuck with it. And yeah, my wife is that way. She's is been she? like on doctor path this whole, you know, and she knew and she just went and went and went. But that's just not how I'm just not really wired that way, I guess. Actually, go back to the ultimate thing, because that to start a club for a sport like that sure. and then to build what you built, 
but you started high school ultimate in Oregon. Is that what you were? Is well, it? yeah. I mean, not like there was. I'm the, in a formal way. Yes, I'd say. And it was. Really? I wouldn't say it was me. I was. Yeah. I was the representative of my school, like the captain and the guy that was going to recruit and was going to okay. be the leader of the team. But there were adults involved. Yeah, like to definitely. make the little league. And yeah, we definitely did the first official. Uh, state championships for ultimate for high school in Oregon where the first two were at my school and we won them both. Did you really? There you go. But yeah, ultimate was a big part. You know, my parents played competitively. I'm told I was like on the sidelines, you know, throwing forehands before I could talk. Really? You know, so I was like on the sidelines of ultimate games, like as a very small child. It's so funny watching when older ultimate players bring their kids and Mm -hmm. the disc, the ultra star is literally bigger than the kid's entire torso. Yeah. And they're somehow holding it with this like five finger pinch grip. And like a straight arm (laughs) delivery. Yes. Incredible. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. So you've had Frisbee in, in your family since you were a kid. I had absolutely, no idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like when we would go camping, we would have a stack of ultra stars and we would play object disc golf. We would go on rafting trips as a kid. We'd go on like multi-day, like four or five day rafting trips where we would be camping and we would throw discs between the rafts. Uh, and like since ultra star floats, you know, you don't do it in the yeah. white water, but even if you missed one, you could jump in and grab it and get back in the boat and we'd throw back and forth. What? Yeah. As long as I can remember, I've kind of been that like sort of like that Frisbee kid uh, to the point that like, you know, my high school senior picture is like me spinning an ultra star. Oh, re- <laughs> was it really? Like I was like re- making a disc club, you know? Yeah. My, I went to a, my, wow. my hometown is called Philomath um, and I made a club called the Philly Disc Slingas. Was that out of a desire to build like a community for yourself? Like you wanted more kids your age to to get into disc sports or sure. were you just kind of a go-getter in a lot of things at, at that age? Uh, I don't know. I think it, part of it was, yeah, just that I wanted to throw and that I wanted to make the team, I wanted our team to be good because yeah. I was, I'm competitive. So mm-hmm. I wanted our team to be good. And my strategy was basically like, I can already throw and I'm just going to get the cross country team to join the ultimate team. Yes. And that's my wife. My, you know, that's some of the earliest memories of my wife. She was at, we went to the same high school. She was the six time state champion in cross country and track and field. Like really a, literally a beast, like running a mile in like four what? 45. So fast, you know, it's... like one of the top five high school girls in the country getting recruiting visits all over the place for track and field. Oh my gosh. So I would just be like, Bree, Go deep now. And she would just hit it. And I'd be like, this is a good time. Go. And then I'd just put it up, let her run under it. No girl in the, in the on the field had a prayer <laughs> of like, you know, so, and we had guys the same way because we had, it was yeah. like all track team and cross country team and uh-huh. the, they were decent throwers, but I would just be like, throw it up the field and run up there and be like, dump, 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 yeah, dump, dump. Yeah, exactly. Hey, back to me. Classic pickup ultimate style. Yep. There's one person that knows how to throw and then everybody yeah. just and we had a couple we had a couple handlers and i I don't want to if they ever hear this i don't want to say no no there were some throwers for sure but but yeah i was definitely doing the the lion's share of the hucking and throwing and and almost all the pulling and then just kind of you know calling the shots on defense and trying to get them to run crazy zones and they're all just run for days and never get tired and i was just kind of orchestrating the offense and defense with like supreme athletes (laughs) yeah exactly and you know and then just just doing my thing throwing shots Throwing it down full field, let them run under it and jump up there over everybody and catch it. That was my whole college ultimate experience. <laughs> I had the biggest trigger finger of anybody that I, I had ever played with. And sure. it looked cool. Yeah. <laughs> it looked really cool after yeah. a while. It's so funny how many cross country and like track kids just like gravitate towards ultimate naturally because Yeah. You know, what else are you gonna do? Like that's it's an amazing game to get into. Like you don't have to have previous ball experience. It helps yeah. maybe for shoulder health, but like not necessarily for yeah the the weird motions. You know, I think a lot of cross country and track and it's like an informal like Friday practices old. Like yes. you know, it's like because they, they're gonna run a ton mm-hmm. and then it can have a little fun rather than just hitting loops on the track exactly. over and over or going for another distance run. They do that four days a week already. So some of them had some experience and we played in the city league. You know, as like a team of high schoolers, That's awesome. we play in the summers and then we would come back and play our school season. Whoa. And, you know, then play in the summers again against adults. I couldn't play in city league till I weighed 100 pounds. So I can. I, <laughs> that was my dad's rule. Your so dad's rule? My dad told me I couldn't play like adult city league until I weighed 100 pounds. Oh, boy. You could cheat that pretty quick. <laughs> I was trying. I remember trying. I remember being like, oh, OK, I'm going to close that. And then once I was 100 pounds, then I got to be in the city league on his team and like play in the. That's so funny. You know, so that was like kind of when I started playing more seriously was in seriously means city league. But I was, but still, I was taking it pretty deal. serious. Like I was playing against adults and trying yeah. to do my best. And. And yeah, that's kind of how I uh, came up playing. But yeah, I remember the hundred pound rule. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't get couldn't get in the adult league until I had a little weight to me. Like they don't yeah. want you to get absolutely yeah, clobbered totally. by somebody laying out into you. Or... And it kind of ruins the game if the kid is like 
too little. Like exactly. this is an adult league. Huge like you don't mismatch. want it to be. You don't want to feel like you're like bullying a kid. It's like exactly. it makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, I have to be at least decent. Yeah. So then, I mean, you're moving through school, and everybody kind of goes through this phase when they get late teens. You know, either your parents are telling you you have to follow this linear path. You have to go to school. You have to do this. You have to get a good career. You have to do whatever. And then you have some people, like I interviewed Joel Freeman, and both of his parents were artists, yeah. and they were both just like, well, whatever you're good at. That's what you do. There's mm -hmm. no nonsense. Yeah. Did you have kind of a set path from your parents? Like, did they try to guide you a little bit as you were getting close to the end of your formal school years? Yeah, I mean, guide certainly, but I think they were pretty hands off in a way that we had like rules about grades like anybody, you know, mm -hmm. so like I would get ba a bad grade and I'd be like having to not do something or whatever. But mm -hmm. I feel like they were a bit hands off in a way that they're like, well, if you really want to screw this up, like, you know can do that and you're probably going to figure it out later yeah you know, like i don't think i think they weren't worried about me in the long term but it was like you know i had my high school had this amazing program that now is gone but it was from like a, i'm from like a timber town you know there was all these mills and that industry is kind of dried up a lot mm -hmm. but a guy who had made millions in that by with the last name clemens had like bought, bought our school a swimming pool and all this stuff and there was a program that if you had gone to school there from first grade you could have four years of tuition matching what Oregon State University charged anywhere you wanted to go. All you had to do was graduate high school and you got what? four years of tuition. So I was like set up in a place where I could just have my college, you know, just oh from gosh. going to public high school. Like it wasn't anything but just our school. And now that's been taken away. Like the, the original guy died and the people that control it now are like super right wing and you can only go to these certain religious schools and it's I see. it's not what it used to be. But I got it. My brother didn't get it. He's only two years behind me. So I had that. And my parents both worked for the school. So I had a discount there. You know, I think my parents were kind of like, please just don't screw it up. Like this isn't going to be hard. Just try like, it. You know, and I remember like barely applying to any colleges. And then I got in, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And then I and I did a little bit, maybe a little better in college yeah. than I had in high school because I was a little more interested. But but yeah, yeah, it was kind of it was a bit by the seat of my pants. More Wait. than I more than I would like. I would like to be able to think back and go, I, I was <laughs> I knew what I was doing. I was mature. No, but way. I was throwing too many discs and just kind of, yeah, just just you is know, that playing what was video, on your mind? Oh, video games, discs, just wasting time like any yeah. like mo like a lot of kids. I think okay. I, it's hard to remember, but yeah, but yeah, I wasn't like super motivated by like you know, oh, I better get this homework done. I, I would yeah. just kind of like last minute. It, a lot the of meaning stuff. already kind of went away for you, and yeah, so you were not. College was like, okay, I, I'm going to go to college. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm glad I got in. I don't yeah. know what I, I guess I would have gone to community college. Yeah. There was no way I was not going to go to any college. Okay. I would have gone to community college and I would have worked and I would have got into OSU eventually. Yeah. But luckily I got in on the first go and I was able to, you know, because I really wanted to play ultimate. You yeah. Know, I can remember thinking I really wanted to go to UC Santa Cruz. Because I had heard about their team and I was like, oh, Santa Cruz, wouldn't that be cool? You know, and this is before I even knew about disc golf. I was just like, yeah. well, that'd be cool to go play ultimate with all these California guys that are yeah. so good or whatever. You know, so I really wanted to play college ultimate because wow. I was more into ultimate than disc golf. Okay. Like that, you so know, you in really those were. years, you know, I was definitely a more hardcore about ultimate early on playing for the, the traveling team. And yeah, I got to play tournaments in. Georgia and San Diego and Vegas and Texas. Wow. And, you know, we were flying and flying in and competing and, you know, playing against the best teams in the in the world. Was it what you wanted? Was that was the experience playing Ultimate there kind of what you were looking for? Yeah, it was fun. It was like, you know, learning from the older guys. And, you know, I was I was pretty good already. Like, you know, so I was like, uh, you know, pretty good for a freshman. Yeah. I feel like they were, you know, I was like kind of a known quantity in town. You really? Because okay. like I was like kind of kicking butt in summer league. And, yeah. Like, I was a decent player already. They were, like, excited to have me with them, I think, uh -huh. and to teach me things and to, so I could get better. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, I played – I didn't play, like, four years seriously because that's when I, I – I got a hamstring injury that nagged me for a while, and disc golf started kind of, like, paying uh -huh. my rent. And it was this sort of, like, this tr this thing where it was, like, the better I get at Ultimate, the more money it costs – yeah, the exactly. Get at disc golf, exactly. the more money I get. Yeah, and I started started. I was getting really good at both, to mm -hmm. be honest. You know, I was solid at both, and it was like, man, I, like my rent was super cheap. I'm just mm -hmm. sharing an apartment with another guy on the team, and I was. I can remember like going to like some little tournament and playing pro, and like just driving my little old truck and sleeping in the mm -hmm. back of the in the pickup bed, and like I just won 350 bucks. Like that's rent and for the whole living. month. Yeah. Like oh my gosh, like I can play again next week. Yeah, you know, and then it got to be a thing where. 
I was prioritizing disc golf. And then it got, then it came a time where I was like, you know, mom, I I think I'm going to take spring term off so I can hit some tournaments, you know, and like make this a five-year college thing, not four years. So I can like play spring and summer. You know, it was always a thing where I was like, Hey, the beginning of fall semester, like the USTGC, I'm going to be gone. Like, tell <laughs> yeah. my professors, like, what can I do now to like make sure that I'm good for? Because I'm going to be gone for ten days. You were that to go, student to go play because I was already, you know, qualifying for mm-hmm. USDGCs back then and and flying out for that kind of stuff. So, you know? so, I didn't realize actually that you straight up ultimate was your initial up, upbringing. I, yes. I assumed that maybe you were like kind of a hybrid, like you mm-hmm. just had all sorts of disc sports, but. You transitioned into disc golf, and like you said, that's actually a hilarious thing to say about like the better you get at ultimate, the more more it costs. Because yeah. yeah, club ultimate is expensive. Like yeah. it's actually a deterring factor for a lot of people. College ultimate too for got for on a college kid budget. Like it was like you got buy your plane mm-hmm. ticket, man. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's gonna be great. Really? But then we like got how? hotels. You got you know we were like yeah. we were doing it as cheap as we could. Yeah. But it was still like you know you're you going down there spending hundreds of dollars. Yeah. To go down and, and do a tournament and sleep six guys For to a hotel free. room and you know it was fun. It was awesome. But yeah. at the same time, it was like. Well, wait a minute. Disc golf is also really fun. Uh-huh. And like I'm getting a lot of positive feedback about how good I am at that. And yeah. the positive <laughs> feedback also comes with an envelope full of cash. <laughs> so it's like, you know, like, yes. oh, okay, like this is yes. this is piquing my interest since yeah. I have zero dollars to my name. Yeah. You know, like it makes <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not like certainly wasn't like having a ton of money. I was just yeah. doing the college kid thing, you know, just getting by, working part time between classes and mm-hmm. stuff. I worked in this little like one room library in the school of forestry and I was like behind the desk cataloging journals and making photocopies for professors and stuff. Like, That's so awesome. I, I did that like 20 hours a week, yeah. you know, and I would go work there and make enough money to, you know, make it all go. But luckily I had that scholarship exactly. too. So, you know, I was basically just paying like food and, you know, just, which is awesome. Yeah. It was, it was going, it was going good. I wasn't getting help from my parents really. Maybe they were still paying my cell phone, but it wasn't like they were like paying my rent. Or they gave like you that. a piece of the pie. You had to earn a piece of the pie, sure, which sure. is good. So what was that transition like for you? Like, well, how, where did that start for you? Like the disc golf thing? Yeah. Like it came late, a lot later in your life than quite yeah. a few people that I've talked to that make a living out of this game. Yeah. I mean, I, the disc golf course got installed in 1999. Uh, so I would have been about 14 or 15 and it was in the same park where I played the majority of my ultimate, the course like went right around the ultimate fields. Uh So my dad, I can remember my dad like pulling a box out of the attic and he had a couple discs, like, Mm -hmm. like eighties Innova discs and stuff. And I was like, I never saw these. I don't remember ever seeing these. I, I remember playing disc golf on baskets at in sixth grade because we had this thing called outdoor school where you went away for like a, a week. It was like a camp, but it was like all the kids in school. And you That's went awesome. and like stayed in cabins and had the older kids as like counselors. And you did like outdoorsy stuff. I remember my name was Weevil and you had like a little <laughs> wood chip with your and you had like a camp name for the week. That's incredible. And, they had, and weird at the same time. It was cool. It was yeah. A, it was a, yeah. And they had baskets there. And I remember being like, well, I'm the Frisbee guy. Yeah. So like bring it on, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then that, that real course came and we started playing like around then, like around 2000. So I would have been about 15 and I was playing and playing disc golf tournaments even then, but I was also playing ultimate and mm-hmm. playing in the city league and the, the high school league. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, my, my ultimate kind of passion probably peaked like around that first year of college when yeah. I was like playing with these guys who were better than me. Cause I'd like never really played with anyone better than me for all through, you yeah. know, against some people's, I played against people that were my equals but I never had anybody on my team that I was like, well, I sure hope he makes the last throw. Of the exactly. Game. It was always me. Yeah. You know, so then to play with some people better than me, like by a lot, like college guys that had a lot of experience, 25 and 26 year old grad students and stuff. That was, oh my gosh. It's a pretty like, awesome okay, experience. Like, this is awesome. These guys are no, understand so much more than I do and they can, yeah. I can learn things and I can get better. But yeah, so I was playing both certainly for a few years by then. I remember like taking the ultimate team out to play. I remember like selling them discs. Like they would come over to my house and be like, yeah, man, because I'm playing am right. And I'm like winning this. I'm like, Hey man. Yeah. Yeah. 15 bucks. Just dealing. Get get these, you know, and I'd like sell discs to all the guys and we'd go and play disc golf out there and they'd be throwing lids and I'd just be spanking them, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I remember taking all those guys out there and yeah, you know, I was obviously pretty good at pulling because I had that disc golf Mm -hmm. background and I could throw it a long way and, yeah, so it wasn't like an overnight transition, yeah. I guess, is what I'm saying. I was playing, I, you know, I won the Junior World Championship the summer after I, I saw graduated. That. It was after I graduated high school. Right after I graduated high school, we flew. It was in in Canada, London, Ontario. We, I went with my dad. We, 2003, right? Yep. We went and we rented a car. We brought, like, tents. We camped uh, up there by the courses, and we and we flew into Detroit, I think, and then drove up there. That's awesome. Yeah, so... 
I did that. And that was kind of then like after that, getting home from that was like when I was starting like, you know, I'm about to be on the OSU team. We're starting to have meetups like summer meetups and stuff for that team. So it was all kind of happening at the same time. But yeah, then, you know, I played the, the AM Worlds uh, 04 and then pro after that. It's so funny, like 2003, looking back in Ontario, Kim Scott Wood was in the tournament too, another player that still plays, I believe, yep. today. Another yeah, he fantastic does. player. He got fifth, unfortunately. You spanked him. Yeah. He was 944 rated at the time. He was the highest rated player at the event. You were nine, a fresh 937. Yeah, well, I remember that because I remember like, you know, like, who am I going to play against? So yeah. me and my dad like looking at me like, this guy must be pretty good, 944. He, <laughs> yeah. You know, and he was pretty good. But I remember being like, yeah, that's the guy I got to beat, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like just, de- just you know, geeking out on ratings. Of course. The ratings were like pretty new back then. Yeah. Which I don't know if I even perceived that they were new because they were like kind of existing when I first joined the PDGA. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was like all excited about going up there and seeing what I had against all these kids. And it was a funny thing because it was, a, you know, now recently in Emporia, they've kind of done this again, but it was a standalone junior worlds. There I was saw like that. 30 competitors across all divisions. It didn't feel that big. Yeah. Uh, but it was really fun. Uh, I remember that at the end, after I had won, I was like super excited. Like, what? Am, how many discs am I going to get for this <laughs> yeah. world championship? And I remember the guy, the TD came up and was like, hey, I got a great surprise for everybody. Everybody gets the same prize. And I no remember way. being like, <laughs> like as just like a competitive champion. champion. Like, what? You know, like and I remember it was a letdown. It was kind of actually a bit sketchy. Like the T D I think like had cut some corners. The PDGA gave me a trophy later. Yeah. To like save face. And it and I don't know that I ever even I was supposed to get it engraved, and I don't know that I ever did. So it's just a trophy. I have like a little glass world that like has a stand, but it doesn't say junior world, it doesn't say my name. So someday I'll have to go to a trophy shop and be like, can you engrave this 2003 <laughs> Junior World? No, they think I'm just faking. But junior World Champion of the world. Yeah, of the entire world. But yeah, I remember that. I remember being kind of pissed that, I, that it, this was the same prize for everybody. Because I was just like, I just did it. I won the world. And, and I was then, like thinking it's going to... Because I had won like script at, at home and like 10 discs. Yeah. And I thought the world's like, I'm going to just have the mountain of discs. 3,000 discs. Yeah, that's yeah. probably what I thought. I don't know. But yeah, it w- I, re- I remember that trip very fondly for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's a sweet start. I'm not going to go line by line through your seasons, but 2004, like you said, you played the M World's 278-person field. Yeah. And you got fourth. Yeah, I played really well. I remember... That's uh, awesome. Justin Jernigan just smoked everyone. I saw that, JJ. great player from North Carolina who, like, was, like, kind of the anti-style of me. Like, he had, like... I remember him just having like six T-Birds and eight rocks. So spinny. He throws And he's like, just like yeah. all backhand and super technical. And he was, just, he was a super nice guy. I, mm-hmm. I was, it was fun to watch him play. And, uh, I, and also my, a friend of mine at the time, like from Portland, Brody Miller. So mm-hmm. two Oregon kids and we're the same age and he got third. So I remember both of us making that final and being like, yeah, man. Cause we knew each other and we'd, you know, play against each other yeah. you know, back home. So yeah, that was fun. I, I remember barely making the, uh, the final nine it was a tie and we had to have a playoff to get into the final nine and the guy that i played off with was like one of the highest rated players in the field it looks like david m shaw 985 yes and he was like kind of a hothead and i I can (laughs) prove it because the story i don't know you know i don't know much more about him i remember him coming up to me at the start of the playoff and going (laughs) and saying something to me like you really want this don't you (laughs) and i remember being like yeah (laughs) yeah like the what karate you, kid of course i do what do you mean and i i don't even remember how i beat him in the playoff but i don't think it lasted long and then i remember he went over to the lake and he threw his whole bag of discs out into the lake really yeah and he was like he wasn't a kid i don't know how old he was it's yeah. hard to isn't that a funny phenomenon when you're 18 you think back like this dude must have been 40 he yeah. was probably like 24 yeah but he seemed like he seemed like way older than me but he he was just throwing discs into the lake and yeah it still sticks with me that that him coming right up to me and get kind of in my face and going you really want this don't you it's like a bad movie like uh yeah like we're in a playoff for the world finals like yeah. why did i come why did i come all the way here on a freaking train to, <laughs> did you really use yeah, the Amtrak? Yeah, I remember I was in Buffalo, New York, visiting my grandparents, and I was with my mom. My parents got divorced when I was very young, and I was with my mom and stepdad. And then they, I went on a train from there to Des Moines, where my dad had driven there uh-huh. to meet me, and I played the worlds, and we drove home. So I took a train. I remember going to Chicago, which is kind of your stomping yeah. grounds. Me and my little brother, it was just us on the train, and I remember we had like luggage. And we got off in Chicago and we like walked through downtown Chicago with all this luggage to find some green space to play catch with an ultimate disc. Really? So we just like walked because we had a big layover or something. And I remember just like, 
like these two kids like carrying yeah. big old bags just down the streets of Chicago until we found a like a little park and then we just played catch for a bit and we walked back to train station. That's awesome. And on to Des Moines, yeah. That's sweet. I don't I don't know where we were, but just either just Millennium remember, Station or Union Station. One yeah, or two, yeah, I remember walking longer than I would have liked with heavy bags mm-hmm. and then finding a spot to throw. That's so funny. I mean, I think for a kid to be able to go out and play these events, like it's such an awesome experience to like immerse yourself in this game and and you still were pretty new playing the game for the most part. Like, you know, competitively, it was only your third or fourth season. Yes, and, and it wasn't like I was playing like 15 tournaments. Exactly. It was like th- four, six, you know, because yeah. it was like a weekend camping trip for my whole family yeah. to play a tournament, you know? So it wasn't like I was out there just like going to tournaments by myself. And you weren't grinding, you no, know? No, not at all. Yeah. I was like playing in Oregon and like, yeah, man, the tournament's coming up. Like, yeah. This is going to be great. And going and just <laughs> playing and yeah. Winning a couple, losing a couple, you know, just kind of getting better as I went. Exactly. Well, yeah. And, and a question I love asking people because it's always a different answer. Mm-hmm. Um, some people experience like this wild growth in skill set as they move on in disc golf. And some people just like chip away and they they use their bread and butter to move on. Myself, I, I was someone that was obsessed with Ford when I was a kid. I was studying Avery Jenkins and I was watching any video I could get my hands on. Yeah. And my game has like significantly changed over time. What was your game like back when you were playing like some of these junior tournaments? What, what do you remember throwing disc wise? Like what shots do you remember leaning on? Yeah, even more forehands, if you can believe it. It was uh, super forehand heavy. I remember like my main upshot disc was like a champion beast. Okay. So for like little short yes. shots, and I still have that little bit of that in my game. Like I'm very comfortable with like a 150 foot firebird. I'm uh-huh. not afraid to go to a driver from pretty short range. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of why, because I, back then I would throw like a driver forehand on a, in a wide open field from 150. Uh-huh. And yeah, so I was super forehand heavy. Ultimate was helping, you know, I was developing my backhand in ultimate and disc golf because yeah. I was forehand heavy in ultimate as well early oh, on. Oh, were you? I was definitely more of a forehand specialist than backhand. I was getting better at both as I was going and putting a lot of time into throwing mm-hmm. and learning. But yeah, I would say, yeah, my game was kind of like you know, floaty putts and a lot of forehands. And, um, yeah, I remember I used to putt off of just one foot where I would, they called me, they called it the stork putt. Oh, really? And I would stand just only on my right leg and have my, if I was in the circle and have my other foot in the air, because I felt like if I ever pushed off with my back leg, I'd putt too hard. So I remember I would just, it was almost like a primitive form of a straddle in that all the leg power is up directional. So I would like squat and push, but only from one leg. And then I've kind really? of now switched into using two legs and no more traditional straddle stance. But for a long time, yeah, I would put balancing on one foot and then like drop down on the one leg and putt. It you makes know. you wonder how, how, like if there's some subconscious skill that was gained through putting like that. Yeah, sure. I it, think for sure. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like the idea of like the legs giving you the loft and the arm giving you the forward energy, uh-huh. you know, and those kind of being separate in a way. When did you build that? Uh, maybe this might be jumping ahead. When did you start spin putting? You have a really, really distinct spin putt that's different from yeah, your. Yeah, I was think that a I, later skill, or yeah, did you always? I have think that? I can answer this pretty accurately, actually, because I I remember that spin putt. The genesis of that spin putt was around 2005 or 2006. Okay, at a course in Washington called Lakewood, and it was lunch break, uh-huh. and I was with some buddies, and I was like goofing on how nate doss putts mm-hmm. winding it up by my chin and yeah. then like putting it super hard just kind of goofing around and then i remember going like whoa like that went really fast and far yeah and that just kind of became this shot that i've like used to great effect like the like inside like 125 feet i feel like i have a, a more powerful and accurate uh shot than a lot of my peers it's at such the, a great that skill to range have. where it's like kind of tucked into the belly button and like mm. spun out quick yeah and i've loved using that shot because it allows you to go for like a lot of putts that are literally impossible with my other my other putting mm-hmm. style i can't even hardly make a 50 footer mm-hmm. with my normal putting style it goes about 40 feet and that's yeah. really the max of its effective range so then having that spin as an option has been like it's just fun because it lets you you oh, know, yeah. attack from a lot more places. But you developed yours for making fun of Nate Dawes. Yes, that's that's, <laughs> that's my memory of it. It's yeah. like I was, we were doing that and I remember kind of like just hammering it at the basket as you do when you're just a kid and you're on lunch break and you need to throw more mm-hmm. instead of eating lunch. You're like out there just putting and messing around and showing off. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember being like, wow, that really smashed the chains. Like, how did that go so fast? And just from there, you know, over the next months and years, just kind of being like, oh, if I kind of bring it in here, mm-hmm. it's like I can really like zip that thing. And, and, and if know, the wind picks up, like you're sure. set there too. Sure. Funny you mentioned Lakewood. Have you been there? No. Okay. I've not. Okay. But I, I know a story about you. Oh, really? 
in Lakewood, Washington. You okay, said? yeah. Is it well? It could be Fort. So it's confusing because the course Fort Silicon is in the town of Lakewood, uh-huh. but the course Lakewood is not in the town of Lakewood. Okay, but we'll see where you're going with this. I have a story about Lakewood, Washington, in about 2006. Okay, well then, was, you were was, was I with, goofing on Nate Doss? <laughs> you were traveling with Dion Arlen. Yeah, that's true. And you went to a tournament, and you went to a really shady hotel. Yes, that's true. I know this story. Yes. I have heard it. Yes. Can you please? I think this is absolute tour life gold. Dude, it was weird. Uh, We were young, you know, and this was actually for Fort Silicon. And we had driven up like late at night to play in the tournament the next day. Uh, It was probably a four, four hour drive or so, maybe a little less. And we got to the hotel late. And I remember it was just me and Dion. And we like went to check in. And the guy, the guy was like, you know, certainly uh, English was not his first language. And he's like, okay, yeah, you, you know, you need a room or whatever. And uh, yeah, we got the room and he like walked with us to the, to the hotel room, <laughs> which was weird. And then he came into the room with us and turned on like porn on the TV and was like. The hotel guy? Yep. And turned on porn on the TV and went like, you like? You like? No way. You like? <laughs> and we're like, nah, man, like, go away. Like, I don't know. It was weird. It was a time in our disc golf life, like, we might have settled for a room with one bed. So he might have got the wrong impression Cheap about hotel, us. like... Because we were just going to... We were playing a tournament in, like, six hours. Yeah. And we were not... You know, we were buddies. Like, no big deal. Like, whatever. We, yeah. If we got to share a bed, we'll share a bed. So this guy may have gotten the wrong impression. I don't know. But what a weird thing to very walk you weird, to the room. Right? And That's... we're, like, very young. Obviously very young. Yeah. So it was a pretty weird experience experience and then it got worse because then he was like we're like barely going to get any sleep anyway and then i remember just pounding on the door and we were like scared kind of like we're in a sketchy neighborhood like who's knocking on a door and then it was the, the dude and he's like you you he, I, I feel like he said you owe me five dollars you owe me five dollars like he had charged us the wrong amount of money and he thought the time to handle this was like 3 30 a.m and he's like banging down our door and we just i think we just like pretended to not hear him and just didn't answer the door but he yeah. was like banging on the door for a long time certainly the sketchiest hotel experience of my life and yeah definitely a funny story looking back but it was very unsettling at the time yeah what a weird yeah. i've never heard anything close to that i've never heard any story from anybody yeah, of a hotel was super receptionist weird. walking you to your room that yeah. in itself would make that me part was weird yeah and then he comes in turns on the tv and yeah obviously puts on the most inappropriate thing you possibly could put on and it was very as if you're both going to be like all right and sweet. high five and yeah like, like i don't know it was so strange and then the whole you owe me five dollars in the middle of the night it was it was a nightmare how did if you do only, at the tournament that I don't remember. Hopefully, probably, probably pretty well. You- I think I, I, I play pretty well at that course. That's so funny. Uh, I- so, so I probably did okay, but I don't know specifically. Um, but yeah, that, it was crazy. This episode is also brought to you by Double Helix Disc Sports. Double Helix exists to provide the best in equipment and apparel for players at every skill level. They are also the manufacturer and exclusive seller of their own grip solution, Ringtail Dry Sacks. Brothers Mark and Matt aim to provide an extremely high level of quality and customer service in everything they do for the disc golf community. So browse their selection at doublehelixdisksports.com and use the code FLIGHTSHIP at checkout to get free shipping on your first order. For more news, giveaways, and sweet disc golf content, follow them on Instagram at doublehelixdisksports. Well, I mean, talk to me. I mean, you're touring with Dion, who I also think is very funny because he has kind of an opposite play style. For those of you who don't know Dion Arlen, phenomenal physical specimen playing disc golf. Huge distance thrower. I think at one point, won a pretty big distance competition. He's one of the guys that can throw over 700 feet if he can. I think at Big D in the desert. Yeah, he, he did. Like yeah. Seven, 760 or yes. something. Yes. So very opposite style of, of you. And you guys traveled to quite a few tournaments during yeah. that stretch, right? Yeah, he was kind of more buddies with my brother. We all went to the same high school, you know, and he like kind of started playing ultimate with us and coming out the course with us. And yeah, I mean, I and I wouldn't even say we so much have opposite styles, but he's more explosive than I am. He throws a lot of good forehands. He throws big backhands. He throws farther than I do. Uh-huh. But I don't, but as from a stylistic perspective, he's a, he's a bit more aggressive because he has the opportunity exactly. to be more aggressive. But I think he, you know, he learned a lot of what he learned from playing with, from us playing together, yeah. you know, and, and like being in the amateur in advance when I was starting yeah. in pro. And he was just like a couple years behind me that whole time. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, he's a great guy, good friend. And yeah, I'm, I'm really actually really looking forward to him being at the Worlds. We're probably going to have an Airbnb. And That's awesome. Do it old school. My brother's coming to the Worlds too. So oh, no way. It'll be like, you know, getting in a time machine to 15 years ago. Moving through this time, you're going through college, you're going, you know, you're going through schooling, you're still trying to like get your education, you're starting to get pretty good at disc golf. Yeah. Those years of any human's life, it almost seems like it comes to this point in every episode because I find it to be one of the most important parts of a ki- like a kid's life. Yeah. That like late teens, early 20s phase. Where was your head at then? Because I know disc golf was still not as established as it is today. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to get good. I was just having fun. And that was right around when Dave Felberg and Avery Jenkins moved to yes. Oregon to go to the to go to the U of O. And I had like heard of those guys and like saw, got to see them at a couple tournaments when I was like right at the end of my amateur career. This is around 2003, 2004. And I remember watching them play and being like, man, yeah, I want to play against those guys. Mm. And and then when I got like 18 or so and I had my own little truck and I was kind of able to like go to tournaments by myself mm. like three hours away, that's when my passion for disc golf really kind of exploded because then it was like, I'm like out here, like I'm a grown man and I'm out mm-hmm. here doing it and I'm out and I'm playing good. And my very first pro tournament was the Beaver State Fling, and I got like seventh, and I won like three hundred and fifty bucks. So, and I was like, it wasn't the Beaver State Fling like the Beaver State Fling is now, yeah. clearly. But like Barry Schultz was there, and Dave Felberg was there, mm-hmm. and and I remember playing terrible. It was there was at two courses. There was one called Dabney that's kind of like a little more old school, little woodsy course, uh-huh. and then there's Milo McIver. We played two rounds at Milo McIver, and I played terrible at Dabney. And I remember looking at the scores and going, I would have got second place if this thing was only at Milo McIver, like at the big bomber course. I would have only Barry would have beat me. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, that, that's crazy. Like, you know, and then the, then my my second pro tournament was my home event. Felberg and Jenkins came up and I beat Felberg. But Avery won and I got second and Dave got third. And I remember shooting like a 1040 rated round. And like my player rating, if you look at my ratings history, it went from like 983 to 1004 in one update. And then never really look back, you know? So it was like a thing where I was like kind of stuck in like nine, high 960s for like a year. Mm-hmm. I was okay. Then I turned pro and I was kind of like, whoa, like these guys are so good, like crazy. And that and I just had this huge leap in my mm-hmm. skill and my confidence and my passion to where I just jumped like 21 points at a, a place where not a lot of people make big jumps once you're already up in the yep. 980s and 990s. You know, like it's kind of hard to jump 20 points mm-hmm. when you're already pretty solid. Yeah, you went 23, you went 981 to 1004. Yeah. In one update. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so that was right around that same time, you know, mm-hmm. like kind of starting to play pro and 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 you know, like once I beat Felberg my second tournament, I was like, "Okay, like I I'm no I'm no slouch. Like I can yeah. I can hang, you know, with with these guys." And that was only just kind of right away, like right mm-hmm. into the pros and and then it wasn't like I thought I was going to go win the world or anything. Yeah. But I felt like, you know, these guys are the best guys around. And you know, there's, you know, they're not Ken Climo, but mm-hmm. they're the best guys around. And, so and I just, and I was getting to be buddies with them and they respected my game and, you know, lo- taught me things and, you know, it was like, okay, man, like crazy. Like, obviously Felberg wasn't playing his best weekend, mm-hmm. but I, just the fact that Whatever. I beat him was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. What, what was your game like at this point? How, what was the evolution from back when you were saying lots of sidearm? Yeah. You know, what, yeah. where was your game evolving to that point? Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of, a lot similar, still. I think, you know, I'm still, you know, you watch me today. It's mm-hmm. that's still a lot of forehands, you know, mm-hmm. so it's not some huge sea change mm-hmm. in how I was approaching the game, but I think my backhand was just continually sort of getting better and my putt was clearly getting better yeah. and my confidence was clearly getting better, which so, is huge. Uh, and I was still like growing, and getting stronger, yeah. you know, so I was gaining distance and like, I was like, you know, hitting the field and measuring my throws back then oh, stuff that you? I don't really do anymore. Mm-hmm. But like, I, cause, cause I was playing with my brother and Dion and Dion like only wanted to throw far. So we would go and like measure and be like, Oh man, I threw 525 feet. Yeah. I remember throwing five, five something. We got DX orcs. We ordered them online. Yes. We got DX orcs. And we're like, these are going to be the ones, you know, I'm, I think I threw it like 540 feet or something. That's you know? really impressive. Something like that. We're playing, wow. we're just in the soccer fields and obviously we're counting skips because yeah. we don't got somebody out there flagging them. We we're just messing whatever. around. We had like a tape measure and we'd roll it out a hundred feet, put a flag, roll it a hundred feet, put a flag. And we were just like trying to crush, you know? So that's so sick. Yeah. D- DX orc was one of my favorite discs mm-hmm. growing up too. It was like, I think that was right when the orc came out was when I started yep. throwing them. Yep. And uh, that was like right when I was getting into the game. That's a fantastic disc. And you still are an advocate for that disc. I don't know how much you throw it anymore. but Not not here in Emporia. But uh, but yeah, in the woods, like a place like Maple Hill, certainly going to have an orc. That's uh, awesome. I throw a champion, mostly champion. And from that kind of era too, like mm-hmm. I just kind of still have them. You know? yeah. And now that people know I throw them, I get fans that reach out to me and like, well, give me these cool old orcs, you know? That's so awesome. So I, I throw those kind of like pre-flight pearly ones and they're great for like, that's kind of the first 
forehand disc that I was like really loving and getting aces with and uh, just like thinking it was the best thing they're ever. They're pretty amazing. They're, yeah, they're great. Great control driver. They were kind of revolutionary. I mean, it's like it was the destroyer of its day, you know, yeah. where it, when it came out, it was like, oh my God, so overstable and it goes so fast. And it yeah. was like a game changing type of disc along with the beast and the monster. Mm-hmm. And the monster was a great disc too. Yeah. I look at your PDJ stats in, in the past, like, 10 years and you go through some phases where you play a few tournaments you go like 10 10 to 15 and then you go through some phases where you're playing a bunch of big tournaments and you're playing usdgc and then you go back and you're not playing as many and it it never seemed like from what i was looking at it never seemed like you took like the greg barsby approach of like i'm gonna be a road warrior and i'm going i'm in i'm in for life and this is it what was your your adult life looking like what what, where was your head at yeah well you know like i met my wife in high school and we've been together since so i was never like this untethered guy that was ready to just go hit the road Mm -hmm. and i never really had much of a desire to be like i'm just gonna like hit the road i'm gonna sleep in my car and i'm gonna just figure it out like that never sounded like the path yeah. I wanted to go down. I was like a weekend warrior, Idaho, you know, Washington, Oregon. I remember in 2007 winning the Idaho State Point Series, the Washington Point State Series, and the Oregon Point Series all in the same year, just traveling around. And, really? Yeah, winning all the state points titles. That's so impressive. In the same season. So I was just traveling, playing all the B tiers I could and, and mostly winning, you know. And so I was doing that, but like, you know, my wife was in college and, and working towards her goals. And I was, uh, for, for four years or so, I taught disc golf and ultimate and hiking and fitness walking really at Oregon state university. So I would, I had like ultimate level one, ultimate level two, disc golf, level one, disc golf, level two, hiking, local trails and fitness walking. And I was really? like a halftime employee and I was teaching, you know, five, six classes a week. I had like a nine folding disc catcher uh, traveler targets. I had a huge box of R-Pro darts, which sort of explains somewhat my affinity for R-Pro darts because I was spending probably eight hours a week exclusively teaching and throwing with R-Pro darts only. So, uh, you know, every no one was allowed to bring their own disc. The first six weeks of my class, we would meet on campus and I would set up like an increasingly harder course with the travelers. And then the last four weeks of class, we would meet at the town course and play, and you could bring your discs then. But for six straight weeks, I wasn't letting dudes bring their drivers. Like, it didn't matter how much you'd played. You're playing with one dart only. And we're all going to play one dart only for six straight weeks. Really? Yep, That's and so just, sick. And just play and practice, and I'll just keep making, and I'm making par fours for putters and just messing around, you know? And I would do, yeah, it was just to... You know, since I was a local to the area and I wanted more hours and there was only so much time for disc golf, that's kind of where the hiking local trails class came. That was like an idea I had. Just, hey, can I teach a hiking class? And I would just be like, hey, meet, meet me here at this trailhead and we're going for a couple miles. And I'd just take 30 college kids up, you know, some little mountain and back down. And what? fitness walking was just an even more basic version of that where it's like meet on campus we're gonna rip around you know <laughs> just like <laughs> we're gonna rip we're just around. gonna walk downtown you know and come back just did a little exercise that class. to them how did you get i mean was they the wanted connection? they wanted me they wanted me because they knew my parents and they wanted disc golf and they wanted ultimate for classes you know so and they knew who I, they knew i had just graduated and you had to have a college degree to teach college classes. So mm-hmm. that's really the only official thing I've used my college degree for to this point. So environmental science paid off in that way. Maybe it'll continue to pay off. And it, obviously, I don't regret it in any way. But yeah. So I taught those for, yeah, years. And I was doing it part-time. So I was playing disc golf. half Like I was making half my money playing disc golf and half my money teaching classes. So I was never like, I was never a guy who was like, oh, I'm just going to be on the road, like living tour mm-hmm. life. I was good. Like I was probably getting up towards 10 30 mm-hmm. but i was just playing locally of and course. then like the west coast swing i'd fly for those or one other random thing drive to minnesota randomly sometime mm-hmm. and just play something you know or and fly for usdgc world championships things like that but that's i mean but but that makes sense because you like you said you had a partner that you've been with for quite yep. some time and, and yep. your priorities were elsewhere it's so much easier to just be a single dude yeah. graduate school oh, i'm gonna save money for a year and yep. go yep i think it's so impressive that you went about the disc golf career in such a different way and you had a disc golf career that like you or your job was very formal you're teaching at a school yep and then you had your little plan you were like i'm gonna play all the b tiers here i had my little schedule you don't have to play a million tournaments but you can yep but now you've evolved into full-time in the spotlight disc golf and yeah it's clear that it's been a career choice ever since you kind of got into it and, and not necessarily playing recreationally, but yeah, once you got pretty good at it, people started coming to you and giving you opportunities. I want to talk about when Jomez came into your life. Sure. And when that timeline began for you, because 2011, you were still pretty big, 
you were traveling and played a bunch of big tournaments, weren't you? Uh, 2011. Yeah. I mean, I probably didn't play that many tournaments. Those were kind of like peak years of doing that teaching stuff. So yeah. if my memory serves, I'm probably playing about 15 tournaments at yeah. the, in those years and, you know, playing locally and then maybe flying one or two times. Okay. Uh, and then I played more, I think 2014. Okay. That was when my wife got into medical school and we knew we were going to move to North Carolina. So I quit my job. I was like, I'm going to play 30 tournaments. I remember emailing Innova, calling Innova and saying, I'm going to play 30 tournaments. My goal is the star team. Like, I was already on the champion team, mm -hmm. and I was just like, hey, I, I want to be on the star team. And I remember they were kind of like, oh, cool. Well, you know, win the worlds. And I was kind of like, okay. Just be good. I'll try. Yeah. But, like, it was very rigid back then. Star team is for major champions, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, I'll try, you know, okay. But I was, I remember kind of thinking to myself, like, you know, whatever age I was then, you know, you're 27 or whatever age I was. I remember setting a goal for myself in that disc golf was like a happy accident for me as a career. Like yeah. I was just tr playing and having fun and trying to make money and it was just a fun hobby. But then I remember like just, I'm just treading water while my wife's doing what she's doing. She had an eight year contract out of high school to run like semi-professionally with track and field. So we had eight year commitment where she's racing and training and she did undergrad and she did all this stuff preparing for med school as well. But I was tied to that. So I was just sort of treading water, you know, doing my thing and having living a fun life, playing, throwing a lot of discs, making enough money to pay my rent and pay my food and just not really putting money away, but yeah. just living. And yeah, then I remember saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to play these 30 and just like go kind of hard because who knows what happens after I move exactly. to North Carolina. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to need to get a job. I don't know what's happening. You know, <laughs> I didn't know. I knew I was moving across the country. So I did that. I remember playing seven A tiers and finishing on the podium in all of them. Yeah, and you had a great season. I was in wow. top three in every A tier I played. And I didn't win the Worlds. Spoiler alert. Unfortunately. But I did. But I played pretty well. And then I remember getting the news. So it was, I don't really quite remember the timeline. They, they might have been almost contingent. But like around when Innova was saying, hey, maybe we can put you on the star team, was the same time I got a message from a guy named Paul Macbeth, who I was friendly with. But like I didn't have his phone number. Mm -hmm. We were acquaintances. He was like this young kid i remember joking with him about how we it was at the flagstaff worlds i was newly pro my wife was playing she actually won in a division of two so she's a world champion as well that's awesome um, but the first round was the two junior girls and the one and one random under 15 boy uh -huh. in his first pdga tournament of his life and it was paul Macbeth. and i was there as like a caddy slash like chaperone kind of being like okay guys like here's whole one like i'm a pro so <laughs> Yeah. You know, and like, just kind of like, yeah, it's your turn, little guy, <laughs> you know, and he, yeah. and so he, and he was like, you're a pro, you know, and he later told me, yeah, that you're the first pro I ever met, you know? So, uh, then I had this joke where we'd win it, where he won his worlds. And I remember posting on Facebook, like we did it, Paul, you know, like <laughs> joking, like just totally clowning that like I had anything to do with yeah. the fact that he's become a world beater. But then I remember him messaging me, uh, 2014, like, Hey man, look what I just bought. And he sent me pictures of this RV that was like on another level of what anyone had ever had. A mm -hmm. brand new 40 foot fifth wheel trailer. I was like, dang, wow. Like, congrats. Like, why are you telling me this? You know, but like sick. <laughs> Stop rubbing it in. You know, like I just got this. Like, isn't that crazy on this truck? And I was like, cool, dude. And he was like, would you, what do you, what would you think about traveling with me? And I was like, you mean for like Vegas? And he was like, no, like for the whole year. And I remember Bree, my wife, was like starting medical school. She's like super busy. And we didn't have our daughter yet. And we're in North mm -hmm. Carolina. I have zero friends. And I remember being like, I don't know that I can say no to this. Like, yeah. this guy says, all I have to do is pay half the gas. What an opportunity. And now I'm in this like luxury. Like, cause I, like I said, I didn't want to sleep in my car. I didn't want to do that and scrap it out, you know? Mm -hmm. So then it had this, there was this running joke where I was like, I was just waiting for a situation that had four TVs. Cause that <laughs> RV had four freaking TVs. But yeah, I, you know, it was like this opportunity of a lifetime. Like, hey man, the, the reigning multiple time world champion just wants, has this custom RV and he wants just me and him. We're going to be on tour together. We're going to do it together. We're going to go. So I told my wife, like, I don't know. I can say no to this. I remember not having that much money. I remember a stretch where I didn't see my wife for 15 weeks because I was just out there with Paul. Mm -hmm. We didn't, didn't have, didn't really make sense to come home. You know, she was busy anyway, but just, yeah. just talking FaceTime, hanging, you know, just missing her, having to, leaving her with my dog and she's just working hard. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, that lasted, you know, two and a half years or so, um, until my daughter came and we bought our own RV, but the Jomez thing happened during that time, you know, with me and Paul and Jomez kind of coming on the scene and, and there wasn't really commentary. I'd done commentary for central coast beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so they knew I knew how to do that. And that was something that I had a knack for. Mm -hmm. 
And they, I remember them asking me and Paul to do it. I feel like the first time might've been at IDGC and we did the sexy beast commentary. Yep, I and, remember that. Yeah. And joking around and we had the Red Bulls, which I never even drank one Red Bull in my <laughs> life, even though Paul was sponsored by him. We had a fridge full of Red Bulls. Oh, did you? Yeah. He had like, so he funny. had hundreds of Red Bulls. He got I, trashed for that online. It was so funny. All yeah. the monsters and Red Bulls he was drinking. Yeah. Yeah. I never drank one. I still haven't, but uh, we were <laughs> pretending and just goofing around. Yeah. And yeah. And doing that, meeting the, meeting the guys and yeah, Joe Mess thing has been, uh, a huge uh, thing for me. You know, it never seemed that way. It seemed like, yeah. you know, at the beginning it was like, well, yeah, sure. I'll do a favor for these guys, mm-hmm. you know? And now it's like kind of flipped where it's like, dang, you know, it's like the opportunity, you know, we grew together. We have, a, we yeah. have a lot to thank each other for. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing. I, so. I think you guys kind of helped create a paradigm shift in the sport. Like I just remember disc golf TV with Timmy Gill. I remember, uh, disc golf TV. Do you, yep. re- do you remember that? Of with course. That? I never felt like there was something, for me as a kid that I could show sure. non disc golfers. Sure. And I think just helping to create that shift is it's yeah. an amazing, amazing thing that you guys are doing. The The thing I find really interesting about this, all this timing, all yeah. this awesome timing and uh, you're seizing these awesome opportunities. It's very easy to be like, I don't want to be away from my wife. I'm not going to go, you know, thanks, but yeah, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. I noticed that the tour series for Innova began in 20 was it 15 or 14 something like that maybe a little earlier even maybe yeah but but like yeah the whole concept of all the companies doing like a tour series with the player money goes to the player it's an easy way for the companies to let the money going to the player rely on yes their outreach to the community yes and kind of a make your own way. Exactly. Situation. There's no, no, theoretically no ceiling. On exactly. How, you know, the production numbers are always hard and, you know, they do their best. But the selling point is like, hey, how many of these can you sell? Like, prove yourself. Exactly. What's your brand like and what, yeah. what are you going to deliver to the rest of the disc golf world? Yes, and yes. Did you ever, <laughs> did you ever, I'm mind boggled by this and you already know the question, but. The answer is no. But, but keep yeah, going. Yeah. No, I, for the fans, I just <laughs> yeah. I, I just hope they know. I mean, I'm guessing a lot of the listeners already know too. But tour series drop 2015 Firebirds mm-hmm. come out. Mm-hmm. That's the first time you're getting like big, big royalty money. Oh yeah, and I mean it wasn't even that big looking back, but yeah. it was big to me in, in I, 2015. Yeah, yeah. I think I I think I got a one of my first checks was like six or seven grand. Okay, and I remember being like, no no freaking mm-hmm. way. Like you know, like this is I made it. This is crazy. So the 2015s actually didn't. They're the most sought after now, it seems like, mm-hmm. but they didn't sell like crazy back oh, then. Oh, no, no. I mean, who, it was just a disc, right? I mean, it's yeah. like it didn't have that mystique about it. It was the yeah. first Sexton Firebird. Nobody was like, it didn't have like this big name recognition thing. Uh-huh. It just had come out. It's like a more equivalent to like a Joel Freeman Gator 3 exactly. or whatever it is that he's, you know, that those guys have. It's like it was, it's a, one of the first years of that model being offered. So, yeah, no, it did fine. You know, yeah. I was happy with it, its performance. Um, you know, I, I, I made less than 20 grand I think mm-hmm. for the year but it was like a lot to me it felt like a lot it, cha- it started to change my expectations yeah. for what might be possible but not even close to what has come to pass yeah but I but I you know I started thinking oh, yeah this is cool yeah this tour series thing is sweet you know I love these discs you know it's fun having my name it's like mm-hmm. that was the goal from the beginning was yeah. like you know how, can I ever be as good at good enough like I can climb out have my name on a disc like how sick would that be? Especially the Firebird of all discs. Like, what a sick mold sure. to have. Yeah, man, you know? yeah. And that was all, like, my idea. You know, it was like, I want the Color Glow Firebird. I want Slight Dome. I want Mellow Flight by Firebird standards. Yeah. Those were all my A inputs. throwable Firebird. It wasn't like they thought of that. That was like, I want Color Glow. I want Slight Dome. I want Straight Flight. Like uh-huh. So it's like, and then, you know, clearly that's a disc that a lot of people are like, I wanted that too. Yeah. You know, because it's, like, been a staple for so many people. That's incredible. And, and as you move forward, you're traveling with Paul. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you work start working with Jomez, and yeah, boom, like yeah, ex- explosion. Sure. Before I dive into this, like where we are now, and kind of wrap wrap up a little bit, I do want to hear from you, uh, your perspective traveling with Paul. I've spoken with him for three hours for this show. Yeah. And what struck me was how differently he seems to think about the game. Sure. Did you gain anything from traveling with him? Did you, did your mindset on anything change or? Oh, I mean, I owe I owe him so much for the opportunity. You know, he kind of made my career in a way because I was in vlogs with him and I was in the RV with him in mm-hmm. the most famous disc golf vehicle there ever was. It's pretty sweet. Rolling out every morning with him, you know, going to every tournament with him. And my first 
full-time touring season of my life was the Macbeth 2015 Grand Slam season. And I'm, I was there in the next room the entire time, every single practice round, the entire time. This dude is making every 80-footer he looks at, you know, all year. I barely beat the guy at any tournaments. Yeah. And we played every tournament together. Yeah. So one of the greatest seasons in history. I'm just like co-pilot, you know, for that whole yeah. thing. Did I learn things? Yes. He and I are wired totally differently. Mm-hmm. You know, we get along great. He grinds, you know, he'll get out there and practice and, you know, and that's not like me getting good at disc golf was like in a lot of ways an accident. Like Mm -hmm. it was like, I'm just having fun and Mm -hmm. I'm getting good and this is great. But I've never really been a guy who's like, I, my goal is the world's and I'm going to win and Mm -hmm. I'm going to go putt more. And, you know, that's just not my way. Yeah. So I, you know, I want to have fun. I want to throw shots that, that I'm proud of. I want to like commit. I don't go into tournaments like I'm about to win. I come, I'll come mm-hmm. in like I'm feeling good. We'll see. Yeah. Sometimes I win. It's a great you know? mindset to have, though. I think on the other end of the spectrum, I think there is a sense of entitlement that can come sure. from overtraining. And yeah, for me, that's not. It never worked for me to be like I got to win this and put all this pressure on myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you know, we were we we gelled really well. You know, I get along. And I think he does too. I think I get along with most people I meet, mm-hmm. and I think he's kind of the same way. But like I've said this before, like I think in two and a half years, I don't really remember us ever having a fight like we shared that small space we Mm -hmm. drove all over the place like the most issues we ever had was like dude i don't want to drive all night well i do you know but we got it was very smooth you know we just kind of did our thing we did um mcbeast challenges where you know those were such a hit and we were killing it and he was really generous you know he we split the profits 50 50 it was on his name i did the planning i got the venues i talked to the people i made the flyers i Mm -hmm. I booked everything. So all he had to do was show up on the day. I taught the clinics. He just kind of like hung out. Exactly. You know, so I was doing a lot of work, but like to split 50-50 on something that's riding on the name that had the value of his, you know, I was making so much money for me at that time Yeah. doing that and, and, you know, and making a great name for myself with the fans. You know, that kind of model is such a win-win for everybody because it's like 40 bucks, you get two discs, we make good money. They get a clinic, they get to play a tournament, they meet mm. us, they like us as players. You know, it's it's like sign all these autographs. We did so many of those and we would do them in Europe and we did them all over the place. So, you know, that was huge for my brand, for my bank account, yeah, for my definitely. ability to keep that whole train rolling. Yeah. You know, and I was like pushing him like, dude, can we do more? And yeah. he's like, oh, I don't know. I got the world's coming up. But come on, Paul, one more, you know, <laughs> like just trying Please. to get more events. Because like for me, I liked it. You know, he's he's an introvert. Clinics are not his idea of a good time. And that's illustrated by the fact that uh, two weeks ago, he had to teach five clinics for the Chamber of Commerce mm-hmm. in his hometown. And he paid for my flight in my hotel. So I'd come out and do the clinics with him <laughs> all the way from Washington. Makes sense. And, you know, it's like he's a friend. He's done yeah. a lot for me. I'm not going to say no. If the guy needs help, I'm help him. Yeah. So I came all the way across the country for one day of clinics to help him out because that's not his bag. He doesn't yeah. like to get up in front of everybody and try to do that thing by himself, even though he's got so much knowledge. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's one he's of a the, lot of knowledge. Yeah, but he's not a teacher. And yeah. it's like, that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. that's not that's not what he does. He doesn't teach people. He, he throws shots. He's not he doesn't supposed teach. to. Yeah. And so, yeah, I came and helped him with that. And that was kind of my, our thing. We gelled really well in that way that I would do most of the speaking. I'd do most of the teaching. Mm -hmm. He'd do most of the ripping shots. You know, we'd (laughs) both do that. Yeah. And we'd both run around the course. We did, we had a kind of thing where we would like jog the course and play with different groups and, and, you know, just kind of show off and mess around. It was so fun, you know, Mm -hmm. and that evolved into sex and shootouts where I was doing the exact same thing just by myself. Mm -hmm. Once I had that, that star power, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was still fun. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and it was I wish still I, fun. I wish I could do more of them. It's hard. It's just like, you know, the RV life with the doctor wife and three-year-old. It's like, you know, my yeah. life, my life has changed, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, and obviously COVID is like, this episode of the flight diary is brought to you by wander disc golf a brand that's bred from passion for the sport and all of the beautiful places it can take us. Wander has a wide variety of thoughtful apparel rooted in disc golf and an advocacy for mental health. Find them at at WanderDiscGolf on Instagram and shop at WanderDiscGolf.com. I, I want to move into kind of the final the sure. final push, you know, to where we are now. You talk about how things are just kind of blowing up for you and things yep. are happening and you're getting the star power and you're still rolling with it, which I love. You're, thri- you're seeming to thrive within that. And then, of course, you know, you have such a great community outreach. You come to Rock Hill at the end of 2017 and you... 
Yeah. You, you win the major, man. <laughs> yeah, what dude. the heck? Yeah, dude, it was can, cool. can you please talk me through like where your game was at that time, where your life was at at that time? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was playing very well. I had, I had been touring full time for a couple of years at that point. The 2015 season where Macbeth had the grand slam, I was three, I had a three shot lead final day USDGC. And was like joking with Paul, like, hey, sorry, man, good try on the Grand Slam. And I exploded and I got like fourth. You know, I lost to Paul, I think, by 14 shots in the final day. Like a Jesus. storm, a storm blew in and I just I imploded and played horrible. And then 2017, I had the same three shot lead. But this time, instead of it being Paul and Ricky three back, it was just Rick. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's certainly easier. At least it's not both of them. And I, and I already knew what it felt like to blow up and regret everything for mm-hmm. two weeks and just be like, oh my God, I had it. I could have won, you know, mm-hmm. couldn't come through. And I had, I've had a lot of really good finishes there. I think in that stretch, like I had mm-hmm. taken, I think I have like four or five top fives. That track seems through, to fit you. Through those years where I was taking a lot of fifth, fourth, fourth, you know, good, good finishes. So yeah, I'm super confident there. It's a course where staying in bounds can get you get you a long way, mm-hmm. and it and it kind of hamstrings the really really elite distance players mm-hmm. with all that out of bounds. Exactly. So it plays pretty well to me because there's not really any shots that it's like I don't have the distance for this. Like I can pretty much reach mm-hmm. every landing zone, I can birdie every hole, and there's not a lot of opportunity for guys to push for like eagles because mm-hmm. it's just too risky to go way up there exactly. on all that out of bounds. So yeah, I mean, I got there super early. My daughter had just been born. I didn't play the World Championships that year because my daughter was. Her due date was right at the same time. And I remember saying, like, from the beginning, I said, I'm just not going to play the Worlds. I don't want to think about it. So I said, I'm not playing the Worlds. And it turned out she was born 5.30 p.m. on the final day of the Worlds, which, like, had to be within minutes of the final putt dropping for Wysocki's second Worlds. That would have been awful timing if you were there. Yeah, I didn't want... I I was actually there two or three days before she was born because I lived in Asheville. It was only about a three-hour drive. So I drove there and was, like, told my wife, like, text me immediately. If anything happens, I'll turn straight around. But I went there and just fanned out for a day and said hi to everybody. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so uh, so I so then I had my own RV and we were my wife was taking a year off with my daughter and I remember we got to Rock Hill like two weeks or we got there super early mm-hmm. and I was playing like I had the luxury of like I'm just gonna play the front nine today and then rest you know and that paid big big dividends because you're usually just kind of rushed you're coming from somewhere else mm-hmm. you're just trying to prep quickly and you're like i've had so many usdgcs where i flew in because i had college classes and i blew out my arm practicing and then like by the time the fourth round comes around i'm like 30 feet short of all my landing zones because my arm is just wrecked Mm -hmm. so it's like this time i had the luxury to like take it a little slower and i was pretty intentional about that with my practice it's just like no man careful like don't push it like keep your arm fresh you want to be able to rip shots on the fourth day Mm -hmm. and you know and then yeah you know played well again shot i think i shot all four rounds in the 50s that's um, so good. And that's, yeah, that's what it takes. And yeah, having that three shot lead over Ricky. And then, you know, he, unfortunately, he bogeyed hole one and hole three, and I birdied both of them. So then it was like, I had a seven shot lead, 15 holes to play. And I remember being like, I would have to screw this up now. Mm-hmm. Like, this is mine. I, if I just play golf, don't implode, don't shoot myself in the foot. Mm-hmm. And I can't, and I, and I remember thinking, like, try not to put too much pressure on myself, but being like, if you can't win now, you're ne- this is not going to happen for you. Yeah. Like you're never, you're How never going to live this down mm-hmm. if you can't hang on to a seven shot lead, mm-hmm. you know. And I played very, very well that final day and was able to like, you know, I hit some really clutch shots. Like I hole six sticks in my mind, the beach hole. Like Ricky parked it, and I w- and that's a nervy hole for me. So in the backhand, when I'm nervous, my miss is early release backhand. And there's been so many times I've pitched that mm-hmm. thing straight in the water, trying to be like, don't wimp it, don't wimp it, and then I just fluff it in the water. And I put it right down there. Yeah, you the have birdie. to throw it hard. No matter yep. what, you have to throw the shot hard. Yep. And that's my that's my miss. When I'm nervous, I like fluff. Yeah, I try to rip hard, but like it'll flop out. Mm-hmm. And that's a hole you can't afford that. So I made the birdie there and got the next one. And, you know, then it was just kind of getting to where I was like, wow, I'm still up seven or so. You know, I'm coming down the stretch. And just, you know, then he had to press. And, you know, I just stayed strong and solid. And, you know, it was a really nice feeling to me to like get to the, get to the 14th or so and be like, I'm not going to throw any more backhands today. Yeah. You know, because I was like, I even went forehand off the triple Mando 15th. Did you? I had a big enough lead. You just actually, had to hit the gap? I actually birdied it. I went forehand orc, forehand sidewinder, and made birdie. Did you crash it right through the triple Mando? Uh, straight through the triple Mando, into the trees on the right, then forehand, sneaky forehand sidewinder, pinball up by the green, birdie. That's like supreme confidence right there. That's like when you know you're home stretch. Well, I was like up five. Yeah. You know, it's like 15th hole. I was like, if you if you make the Mando... Yeah. And you make the island on 17, you yeah. win. There's nothing else can stop you. It's mm-hmm. the, those two holes. 
and I made the Mando and I made the island. And yeah, that was the moment. Making the island was kind of the peak of my excitement. And, you know, I still wasn't like smiling because I like wanted to steal the deal. But I remember just like clapping so hard. My hands were buzzing, you know, yeah. just like, yeah. Like got it on there. 17 you know. is, is that a hole you're routinely pretty good on? Well, no. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I'm pretty good at parring it. Yeah. I'm not great at birding it. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm pretty good at hitting that right side of okay. the green with a firebird. That's good. And that's all I needed to do, you mm-hmm. know. But, like, I wouldn't say I'm very good at birding it, especially not that left side. hard. The left setting I don't even really try for. I just kind of pitch it way right and lay mm-hmm. out. But, but yeah, it was, it was a magical thing to have my daughter there. She was, like three or four Fresh. months old, yeah. you know, and now my wife there and, and yeah, to, to get that one that kind of like validated my whole life choices, yeah. you know, like in one moment was kind of like, I just had bought a $70,000 RV. I'd like put my baby in an RV and we're like on the road and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'd been like not getting a real job my whole life, uh-huh. you know? And then winning that was kind of like, it was all worth it. Like yeah. I didn't have any, th- I didn't have any second guesses after that. You know, it was just like looking back and I was like, well, that's that. That everything I've ever done was like leading, leading me here. Yeah. And this is all the only place I ever wanted to go. In that way, it was like a just like a such a satisfying experience to like sit there and be like in the in the days and weeks after it and be like, mm-hmm. you know, every time I like decided to keep going and you know whatever, it was just like validated all of those course. decisions. Flight Diary is edited by Lindsay Rodans, music by Johnny Darge. We are out here in beautiful Orangevale, California this week for the U.S. Women's Disc Golf Championships. I did get to sit down with Missy Gannon and record a full-length episode with her, so be on the lookout for that one next. Thank you all again so much for the kind words and support of the show. It really helps us to keep pushing. We will see you in a couple of weeks for the next episode, and thank you for listening.